All right. Hey, thank you, worship team. We are blessed to have the people that we do leading us, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Um, thank you so much. Hey, about three months ago, I was selected for jury duty here in Lancaster County. Great moment in my life, and I was one of many called. Showed up on a Monday morning, and we waited around all day, and we're told, please come back tomorrow. So Tuesday, we showed up again, and about 35 or 40 of us were selected into the broad jury pool and go into the courtroom and uh, answer some questions before the judge and have the, uh, the lawyers decide who among the whatever 30 of us or so should be the 12 and then two alternate jurors. And so as the lawyers were sitting in front of us trying to figure out what jurors should be selected, the judge said to us, he said, this can take some time. You need to be quiet. Now, what I've found as a judge is the best way to keep you quiet is that you can ask me any question that you would like, not related to this case or anything related to what I do, but any other question is fair game which we responded with silence for a long time in the courtroom because we're all strangers and don't know one another. And finally, people started asking questions, and I decided I'm going to ask him a question. And I asked him the question. I said, what's the greatest piece of advice you've ever received? He thought for a moment. He said, my mom told me I should have been a doctor. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't take that one. See, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm always after... And, and, I, and I think we all are always after a little bit more wisdom than we currently have. We're always wanting to know what's the best way forward. What should I do next? How do I gain, as Moses writes in Psalm 90, a heart of wisdom to know what is the right thing to do? And the reason I asked the judge that is I thought maybe he's got a piece of wisdom that I can learn from in this moment, someone like him. And when Moses wrote that in Psalm 90, what he's essentially saying is, listen, your days are going to be full of stuff. And the decisions that you make in your days are important because those decisions accrue over time. And as you are living day by day by day and make decisions that turn into habits, they create your identity and they create your life. And they accrue, both the good and the bad decisions accrue, and we get into what we call ruts. And so Moses said, Lord, teach me to number my days. In other words, to remember that today actually matters and that the decision that I make today actually matters. The reason is so that I may gain a heart of wisdom. And so as I would begin this series with you, I want you to know what my desire is for you, not what my interest is from you, but what I want for you, what I hope for you as we begin a new series called Meaningful, is that I hope that this series will help you in gaining a heart of wisdom for the every day. I think you'll understand more of what I mean by the time I'm done, but my hope is simply that, that I can help you along in some way, shape, and form in understanding more of the heart of God for the decisions that you have to make on a daily basis. You can understand both him and yourself in a clearer way. So I figured the best way to do that is to go to one of the smartest men ever to walk the planet, not Jesus, although he would certainly be on the top of that list, but right behind him is a man named Solomon in the Old Testament, perhaps the wisest man outside of Jesus ever to walk the earth that we know of. And I thought, let's go to Solomon. And what I thought is, first of all, let's go to the Song of Songs. And then I thought, well, that may not be helpful for everybody, so let's save that for another time. Then I thought, let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes, because what we need more than anything else in the summertime is to be depressed for the entire summertime, okay? And so that's where we're going to be for seven 
seven weeks, we're going to be landing in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, there's a lot of interesting things about the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, you need to know that I've probably done more study on Ecclesiastes in the last several weeks and months getting ready for this than I ever have in, in my life, actually. Um, and in the process of that, I've learned some things that I think, um, actually, if I'm honest, surprised me. Um, if I'm just honest with you, they were very surprising. Uh, to me, and I learned that Ecclesiastes is not as simple as I first thought. And the reason I want to just park here for a moment is because of this. How I, here's, what I, here's my train of thought, okay, see if you follow this or not. How I interpret the book of Ecclesiastes shapes the messages that I prepare and deliver to you, which shapes what you hear, which may actually shape a decision that you make in your real life. So if I backtrack that and think people who listen to what is said may actually make a real decision that might impact somebody or something based on a decision or an interpretation of the Bible perhaps that I might have. So to me, I find great responsibility and weight in that, and I want to interpret as clearly and cleanly as I can. But I also know that it's not all me, that you have the opportunity and, and the privilege and the responsibility too to make sure that what you hear is correct. So in this series, I want you to know there have been some things, and I'm going to go into one this morning, that have changed fundamentally how I view the book of Ecclesiastes, which is why it's even titled the way it is. As you see on the image behind me, that little ticker is rolling over from meaning less to meaning full. I believe there's one big idea that changes everything about how we see everything in the book of Ecclesiastes that changes life from this meaningless drone of the everyday to meaningful. To start, I need to give you an introduction to the book. And so this morning when you leave, you may feel like, man, that was an introduction to the book. Because this will be, ready, an introduction to to the book. Okay, that, that's what this morning is. It's the first week of a seven-part series, and it will feel like an introduction, but to me, the introduction is so important because it shapes how we interpret the entire book, which again, if it shapes how we interpret it, it shapes how we talk about it, it shapes how we think about it, it shapes the decisions you make in your life on the basis of it. So to me, it's very important to understand the book as clearly as we can. All right, so here we go. With Ecclesiastes, um, my default thinking on this as I walk into a book of Ecclesiastes is, is how I've been raised on Ecclesiastes, and that is thinking um, it was written later in life by Solomon, and he somehow got jaded or tired or worn out, but he was at the end of his life and writing a book, and it has some wisdom in it, and it has some stuff I don't know how to understand, but Solomon writing toward the end of his life. That was my presupposition coming to the book. If you're a conservative, Bible-believing Christian, that is probably your view as well. If you have no exposure to the book at all, then hey, you have an opportunity this morning to figure out what you think actually is going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to share with you what one commentator said about the book in the New American Commentary. They wrote this. They said, Ecclesiastes is often looked upon as the Bible's resident alien. Right? Other books may be considered perplexing like Job or is superseded by New Testament revelation like Leviticus. But many read Ecclesiastes, however, with the distinct feeling that this book does not belong in the Bible. What other book immediately meets the reader with such pessimism and despair, everything is meaningless. And what other book challenges the idea of the afterlife in chapter 3? Furthermore, it's not helpful that almost every aspect of the book's origin and background is hotly debated. 
The authorship, date of composition, purpose, message, and even the original language of the book have all been disputed. Now, if you ever read Ecclesiastes, you feel the weight of this book immediately when we get into it. In fact, I want to take you there right now. If you haven't turned already to the book of Ecclesiastes, find a Bible around you. There should be a Bible in the pew around you. And make your way to this little book. Um, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible in the pew is our gift to you to have, uh, to take with you. Uh, Ecclesiastes is found, if you open up to the middle of the Bible, you'll find the Psalms. There's a lot of those Psalms. And then you'll go to Proverbs after that. And then you'll go to a little book of Ecclesiastes, a 12-chapter thing right at the end of that. And you'll feel the weight of Ecclesiastes immediately. Um, Solomon does not wait in, uh, in hitting us with, with the, the words here right away. And I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 11 uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, reading from the New International Version. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And that is a primary question that is asked, by the way, verse 3. If I could show you my notes on the book of Ecclesiastes, I would show you how many times I circled the word gain or advantage um, throughout the book because the interest is, how do I get ahead? I want, life is full of pain, how do I gain? How do I get ahead? How do I gain? And he, he asks a question at the very beginning, what does man gain from all his labor which he toils under the sun? Verse 4, <clears throat> generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Isn't that awesome? Now, great. You are so glad that you're here this morning to be encouraged by the book of Ecclesiastes. Don't you feel that, if we're honest, don't you feel the humdrum daily struggle of it? Anyone ever feel that way about laundry piles? I mean, the, the laundry rises and the laundry sets and you wake up in the morning and it just keeps coming. I mean, you're a stay-at-home mom or even a dad with, with uh, learning how to take care of a little one. The diapers just keep coming right over and over and you feed them and then they get hungry again as well. I mean, it just keeps coming and coming and coming. You're working with clients and you solve this issue, but you know you solve that issue, but tomorrow there's a, another issue there to have. You pay this bill, but you know there's another bill waiting. There never will be a time when you don't have bills to pay. I mean, there, you solve one tension, you move on to the next. There's just this routineness of life that never will be resolved. And so the author is saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It just cycles over and over and over again. Winter, spring, summer, and fall, you know, there we have it. It's going to keep coming, you know, over and over again. And we, if we're honest, we feel that. Now, if I'm honest, I, I, I felt that this week. You know, I, I felt that, and there's seasons. Life is kind of set up for us to experience different seasons of, of life. 
seasons of greater discouragement and seasons of greater encouragement. And that's just the way life is set up. It's just the way things work. There are times where even this week I felt greater seasons of discouragement, greater seasons that were harder for me personally, where I was having a harder time seeing the positives than the, than the negatives. The negatives were more right in front of me, and it was very difficult. And if you've been there, you can relate to the author of the book here, who's saying, listen, this is life. This is life. The author here, you need to know, has, a, has one primary um, grid in which he writes this entire book. And like it or not, it's going to be even more depressing. We're going we're gonna to walk through for a couple of verses this author's primary grid when he thinks about this life. And basically his point is, the reason that I don't believe there's a lot of hope is that because everybody dies. Okay, Death... Is, is a real downer for the author of Ecclesiastes. It really is a downer because death is the end of it in his life, in his mind. What's the point? If everybody dies, what's the point of making good decisions? If everybody dies, what's the point of being moral or immoral? If everybody dies and you are not going to be remembered and I'm not going to be remembered by the generations that come, what's the point of leaving a good legacy? I mean, what's the point if no one will be remembered because we're all going to die? I mean, that is... That's the ceiling of hope for this author. Now, I, want, I want you to see it. I want you to see the weight of this throughout the book. And so I want to take you to a couple passages. If you imagine a, a stone skipping across the pond, we're going to skip and hit a couple of different passages in here because, again, it's an intro. So I'd like you, to, if you're still in Ecclesiastes, to turn right over to chapter 2, verse 16, here and verse 17 as well. Here we read, For the wise man, like the fool will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. In other words, what's the point of being wise? Why not be foolish? Both are going to die. So why make good decisions in the first place? What's the point? He goes on in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. And there he, he says this. Who knows? Legitimate question, verse 21. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? I, I don't know. Who knows? Has anyone ever been there? I don't know. So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? In other words, he won't be able to see what happens after him. There will be an end to him and who knows what's going to happen. And so the best thing that you can do is enjoy a little bit of life if you possibly can. Here's the author's perspective is that pleasure is a sedative for the pain of life. Imagine a headache that never goes away, but you could take an Advil and it would give you an hour of relief, but you can only take them every four hours. You take an Advil, you can get an hour of relief. And, and he's saying, enjoy the hour of relief that you get. Just know the pain will come back and then you're going to die. I mean, but enjoy the hour if you can. Because pleasure is the only thing that he sees that can take away the pain. It doesn't actually take it away, it just kind of numbs it. It's like the Advil for, for an hour. Chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, the author continues to write there, and he says this in chapter 5, 16 to 17. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. Again, death. And the question, what does he gain? Since he toils for the wind, all his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Chapter 6, verse 3. A man may have a hundred children 
and live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in, in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Death is the overriding theme. Chapter 7, verse 2. It is better, better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Wouldn't you love to have him at your party? Chapter 9, verse 3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope, but even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Your, de your destiny is death. And finally, this last section in chapter 9, verse 7, um, is, is really poignant. I don't know if many of you have seen the animated movie Despicable Me, but in that movie, in one of the opening scenes, to introduce the hero slash villain, the villain turned hero, this um, superhero who attempts to steal ridiculous things such as the moon or you know, um, an ancient Egyptian pyramid. Um, his name is Gru, and as Gru is being introduced to the audience, we see in the foreground a young child, maybe a four or five-year-old, holding an ice cream cone, and the ice cream has fallen off onto the sidewalk, and the child is crying. And Gru is walking up behind him, and as Gru approaches, he sees the situation, and he decides, I'm going to do something about it. And what he does is he reaches into his magical jacket that he has, he pulls out a little balloon that he can make into a balloon animal, and he turns his back to the camera, and he makes a giraffe, and he hands it to the kid, and the kid is pleased with what he has. He allows the kid to enjoy it for a moment, and then he takes a pin out of his pocket and pops the balloon right in front of the kid, and it sprays all over the kid's face. And Gru walks away laughing and happy with what he has done, and that's our introduction to the main character, Gru. With that in mind, look at chapter 9, verse 7. He says this, Go eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it's now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Hey, enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. And he takes the pin out and he pops the balloon of any kind of joy that you might have. Because at the end of the day, you're going to die. And here's what he has to say about that. It's very important to see the author's theology of death in verse 10. Where you are going, look at the end of that verse, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. The Christian view of the resurrection is that we are cognizant, we are aware, that we have an ability to think, even to work. We have an ability to worship, and this view here seems very different than that. In other words, he's saying, because you are going to die, 
and I have no hope beyond that. Everything else of what you experience in your life, the best that it can be is an Advil for an hour, but you're going to have a lifetime of a headache, and then you're going to die. One commentator said that the theme of Ecclesiastes is life is full of trouble and then you die. Isn't that awesome? So for the whole summer, we're going to be here. Isn't that great? I mean, isn't it, this is so exciting. It's so exciting to be here all summer. But here's what I've said. Uh, what I've said in this series is that this series is not called Meaningless, but Meaningful. And the question is, how in the world do I get there? How do I get from meaningless to meaningful? Because there's something I believe that's very, very important in how we understand the book of Ecclesiastes to move us from meaningless to meaningful. And in order to explain that to you, what I need to do is I need to tell you this, that, that I don't think that Solomon actually wrote this book. Okay? I, don't, I don't think that this is actually written by who I have always thought it's been written by. And I'll also tell you this, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. But I also know this, that if I think Solomon wrote it, I may be wrong on that count as well. This is a hotly debated issue more so than I realized, and to me, here's why this matters, because if Solomon wrote this book, I have got to square the theology of this book throughout the rest of the scriptures and understand that this is a man of God who, who pursued him and who followed him. And I have to find his writing and figure out how do I make sense theologically of all that's going on in here. If someone else wrote this book, in a way that I'm going to explain to you, it makes, to me, a completely different sense of how we even begin to interpret this book. And again, how we interpret the book changes how you hear the message, and how you hear the message might actually change what decisions you make in your life. If we want to gain a heart of wisdom, we want those decisions to be based on the best information we have about the Word of God. So I want to explain to you for just a couple moments why I think someone else wrote this book. And here's why I don't think Solomon wrote it. I'm going to throw a couple of, of things up on the screen um, in a kind of scattershot format for you to see. Number one, because Number one, I need to spend a couple of minutes because I think it's important that you understand why I think the way I do about Solomon not writing this book. Okay? Number one, there's a matter of language. The language that's used in this book includes phrases that just simply were not around uh, when Solomon was around. There are Persian and Aramaic words that simply weren't used. Imagine picking up a time capsule uh, 50 years from now and seeing someone write about their vacation. And we took a selfie when we were at Niagara Falls. You could date in general when that time capsule was based on when selfie came into usage. It wouldn't have been in the 1970s, right? Because that word just didn't exist. I mean, it existed in another context, but it certainly didn't exist the way that we understand it now. Words come into meaning over time. There are words and phrases, in fact, 96 Aramaic words, one conservative scholar says, that, that occur in the book of Ecclesiastes that were not in regular occurrence during the time of Solomon. There's Persian phrases as well. We have a question about the language, number one. Number two, if you still have Ecclesiastes uh, open, if you can flip back to chapter 1, there are two verses in chapter 1 that are very important to how we see this book. Chapter 1 and verse 12, the writer here says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now that might think, make you think about well, Solomon because he was a king over Israel, and it's true. He was in our time because we're looking back on the past. But when this book is being written, do you see the tense of the verb? I, the teacher, was king over Israel. There actually never was a time when Solomon was not king. When he was writing, he would have been king. If this is Solomon writing, the tense of this is, I, the teacher, am king over Israel and Jerusalem, not was. There's a past tense that's very important here to, to see. There wasn't a time when he was writing when he was not king. In chapter 1, verse 16 as well, he writes, um, 
I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. That sounds great, but there's only two people, like Saul and David. That, that, that's it. It's a little extreme to say more than anyone else who's ruled in all of Jerusalem. You might just want to say more than my dad and my grandfather. I mean, more than dad and, and Saul. Like, it's, a, it's a little extreme. As I continue here, why I think the way I do about Solomon, you need to know that there are select passages in here. I'm not going to go to all of them, but there are a couple of times when the author says things like this. Um, basically, I don't have the power to stop the oppression that's happening. The, the rich are oppressing the poor, and what do the kings do about it? Nothing. Uh, all that kings are good for is taking the taxes and stuff from the fields of the harvesters. Like, it's possible Solomon wrote that. But it's curious, because he had the most power of anyone. He certainly, if anyone, had the power to stop oppression. I'm not sure that he would write that of himself the way he did. Number four here, there's a change in voice, and this is significant. If you're still in chapter 1, you'll see the first word of chapter 1, verse 12, is I, the teacher. But the first way that the teacher is introduced in chapter 1, verse 1, is in the third person. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless. That's the third person. They're speaking of somebody. In chapter 1, verse 12, it changes to first person. I, the teacher, am writing. And in fact, it continues in the first person all the way through the book until the end of chapter 12. The end of chapter 12, if you want to look at that with me, you can. Chapter 12, verse 8 is where this ends. In chapter 12, verse 8, we see is repeated, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. We go back at chapter 12, verse 8, to the third person again. There's a shift in person. Why would one person, Solomon, if he's writing, shift from third to first person? It is not clear why that would be without maybe some other understanding. The question that I would also have is why did Solomon not use his name? What is the advantage behind not using your name if indeed you did right? Now, the last two are probably the strongest views for me, and that is number seven or eight or whatever this is, there's a category called fictional autobiographies um, in terms of a style of writing. Now, just to understand this, have you ever walked into your child's room or your grandchild's room and pretended to be some fictional character? Like uh, walking into your little kid's room and like, here comes a big bad wolf. I'm going to huff and puff and blow your house down. Oh, no, oh, no, here comes a big bad wolf. And then you go over and you blow on them and you tickle them and you have fun and all that and you just enjoy your moment together. And you're putting yourself in the fictional character of the big bad wolf. Or you could just walk and say, Dad's here, I'm going to come tickle you. It just doesn't have the same appeal, does it? And there's a category of writing called fictional autobiographies in which in this time, and even in our time today, writers put themselves in the character of someone who lived before them in order to make a point. Similar to going to Gettysburg and hearing the Gettysburg Address delivered by Abraham Lincoln live. We know it's not Abe Lincoln, but getting in character to make the point is the point. In Akkadian, the, the writing uh, language of the time, there's at least 15 different Akkadian manuscripts that have this exact format at the beginning, as Ecclesiastes does, that puts somebody in a position that they actually are not in. It's called a fictional autobiography, getting in character in order to prove a point that that character would try to prove. Finally, I alluded to this already, is the theology of the book is a question mark. It's difficult to understand how we um, 
deal with the theology of the book that has no resurrection view until the very end, if Solomon indeed did indeed write this. And so we ask this question, if it's not Solomon, then who? And here's what I'd like to suggest to you, and this is why this matters, because again, how you interpret it impacts how you hear it, impacts the decisions that you make with your life on it. I believe that there are two people who are involved in the writing of this book, and first would be called what we call a frame author, the person who wrote chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and the person who wrote chapter 12, verses 8 to 14. That the frame author is essentially writing to his sons, literal or figurative, trying to give them a heart of wisdom, wanting to give to his sons advice about what to do next. The second person involved in this is actually what we call the teacher, or referenced here as the teacher in Hebrew, it's called Kohole. Um, and you see that, that writing up there. That what I believe is happening is that this frame author is taking the writings of a wise but pessimistic sage and putting them down for his sons to read. And then, at the end of his writing, he is actually giving him a key to understanding how they should read what they just saw. And that, that key that he gives at the end is what changes the interpretation of the entire book and moves it from meaningless to meaningful. That's how I see this letter shaping up and how I see this book shaping up. You need to know this is actually the same model that we see in the book of Job. In, in other words, in the book of Job, we have Job's friends who are offering advice and perspective, but we don't actually take their advice as things that we're going to build our lives off of, right? When's the last time you quoted one of Job's friends and the bad advice they gave and said, well, it's in the word of God, therefore I'm going to follow it? But we don't do that because we know that the corrective to Job's friends is given at the end of the book of Job. That when God comes and speaks to Job, we take the end of that and we interpret the whole book through the end of the book of Job. And I believe the same thing is happening here in Ecclesiastes, that what Kohole, or the teacher, is writing about is indeed wise, but is also pessimistic and incomplete because there is a resurrection beyond death. When you don't believe that, everything else is meaningless. And so I believe the end of the book interprets the entire book for us. That's what I think is happening. And so that's where I'd like to turn with you. If you have your Bible still open, if you're not at the end already, if you could turn to chapter 12, verse 8, and um, we will see, actually, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 13. I'm going to just jump right there to that section, because here's what he writes at the end of the book. Now, all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. This is good to know. What, in other words, would you summarize as the point of this entire book? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. As we read Ecclesiastes, these last two verses, I believe, are the key that we superimpose on the rest of the book and say, oh, okay, I need to make decisions for my life through this grid. Number one, what am I supposed to do? Fear God and keep his commandments. The attitude of the heart and the actions of the body. The attitude of the heart that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the smartest thing to do to fear God. Now, remember the question that, that Kohole asked earlier? In other words, what is the point of being wise versus foolish if you're going to die anyway? Everybody dies. At the end of it, the frame author will tell us, hey, fear God and keep his commandments even when it's cloudy. Why should I do that? And here's where he introduces this concept in verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words, do you see what's happening there? In other words, there is a future beyond this life. This is how the book ends. 
The book ends with saying death isn't the end. The book ends with saying there is a judgment to come. That, that God actually sees and knows everything and that because he sees that, there's judgment. And if there's judgment, there's hope because there's life beyond death. This is different than the theme that the teacher, the Kohale, has introduced for the several, even the several passages I walked you through. This is different. This book ends differently than it is run. And this is why I think that this one idea changes everything. If you look at it this way, you have two different ways to make decisions in life. One is this way, with no future in mind, without clarity on what your future is, without clarity on how things will end up. Making decisions about money, relationships, um, family, uh, career, uh, schooling, without clarity on what my little decisions now will accrue to become. And when we make decisions without clarity on the future, we are blind. We are flying blind, and we cannot make good decisions. When we make decisions with no future clearly in mind, we will function just like the spirit of the teacher, the kohole, will suggest. In other words, we will feel, after a while, what's the point? What's the point of trying to be the nice guy? Everyone else is cutting corners. What's the point of trying to be moral and ethical? Everyone else is doing it. What's the point of trying to save? What's the point of being wise? Come on. The sun rises, the sun sets, everyone's going to die. I mean, what's the point? When there's no clear future in mind, our decisions degenerate to that lowest common denominator. We really get on board with what the teacher is saying. Hey, life is full of pain. Take an Advil, enjoy it for an hour. Go party, go throw caution to the wind, go do whatever you want to do. Who cares about your decisions? Just go have a good time. Have a great time. When there's no future in mind, it's not clear. We make decisions like the Quohole would be making. However, at the end of the book, the frame author says there is a known future. There's another box that you can be in when you make decisions. There's a no future and a known future. And if you are in the known future box when you're making decisions, everything is different about your decisions. If there's a known future and that actually what I do today matters, then everything I do related to my wife or my husband matters. Everything I do related to how I go to work matters. Everything I do about how I make a decision with my career matters. Everything I do with how I make decisions about money or my ethics or my morality matters. It matters because there's a known future, and the future is not just at the end of the day, you're going to die, good luck with that. Have fun while you can, and pleasure is a great sedative for life. There's two different boxes to be in. And the frame authors at the end of, end of the book saying, listen, here's what you need to do. Even when it's not clear and you don't know why it's happening, there's a known future. God will judge everything, good and bad. And in light of that, because the future is known, do two things. Fear God. In other words, honor, revere him, and keep his commandments. Do what he says. But I don't know what that is. I don't know. It's too hard. Everybody else, listen. There's a known future or a no future box. And which one do you want to be in when you're making decisions that will accrue over time? You want to gain a heart of wisdom. You want to be wise in what you do. And the author of Ecclesiastes is telling his sons the next generation, listen, be wise in what you do. 
be wise in what you do because there's a known future. And that changes everything. That changes everything. And that changes everything about these issues. It changes everything about what is wise versus unwise. It changes everything about how we see our work. It changes everything about money and wealth. It changes everything about how we see oppression and injustice. It changes everything about our reputation and how we see that. And it changes everything about knowing God's will. And these six topics that you see up here are the outline for where we're going in this series. Each one of these is going to be the focus of each of the next six messages in which we go through the book of Ecclesiastes with this grid in mind that there's no future and there's a known future. At the end of the day, fear God and keep his commandments and make decisions. Make decisions on the basis of this reality that life doesn't end when you die. In fact, for the Christian, it's just beginning. And for the Christian who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. This makes Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection all that more amazing, all that more powerful. That the power of the book of Ecclesiastes in and of itself, you felt the pressure, I hope, that the Kohale was was writing about. We were reading about death and the fact that it almost doesn't matter what you do because you're going to die anyway. That is a heavy weight to bear. And many, if not most of your friends, might even be in that category of generally being discouraged about the weight of life and hoping to find pleasure as a sedative to keep them going now and then, but overall being weighed down. The hope for the Christian is that weight is relieved and lifted and moved when Jesus conquered the power of death. And this is why the frame author will say at the end, hey, when things aren't clear, when you don't know what to do, live in the known future box. Fear God. Keep his commandments and let everything else take care of it from there. Next week, I'm looking forward to Kevin Hackett coming to bring the message to us here. Following that, for the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about these issues and what difference it makes when you're in the no future box versus the known future. We're going to compare the two and the decisions that we make when we're not thinking about the future, the decisions we make when we are. And I hope it'll be a great run for us to gain a heart of wisdom. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here this morning and to get into your word in ways that um, I hope will help us understand both you and your heart in clearer ways. We do thank you that as Christians we have a hope of a future that is different than those who do not share that. And we thank you for that, not in light of what others don't have, but just in light of the grace that it is to all of us the offer of salvation, the offer of Jesus' death on the cross, and the freedom that that brings to us in how we see our lives and how we see a future with you and how we live on this side of eternity as well. We thank you for the hope and the life that that brings. We know that there's nothing more that we need than the the hope of life with you. We thank you that we have that hope through Jesus Christ and the resurrection that he conquered when he conquered death. We thank you for the love and the care that you show for us. Give us courage to make decisions in the known future rather than the no future box. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.